0: This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. I'm Dave Vanderveen, and uh, the whole idea of this podcast is to help people break through barriers in their life to do more than they thought they could and to scare themselves a little bit every day. And today, I'm sitting here in Vanderhalla with Carl Tiny Williams, not so tiny. Carl, how are we doing this morning? Good, Dave. Good. Really it's good. uh it's bright and early here. It's uh just before 9:30. a and, Beautiful day in Laguna. Yeah. And uh you're here with Jasmine, your new wife. That's right. We'll get into that a little bit today. <laughs> <laughs> we had a very very fun night the the other was that Friday night? Yes,
1: yeah, Friday.
0: Yeah, just a couple nights ago.
1: Yeah.
0: And uh I think we all we all exceeded our expectations that evening <laughs> um, but man that was fun and uh, so we, we, we got together I hadn't seen you since last year when we were um, together in New Zealand for the outside TV special yeah with Pat Parnell. that's right that was an awesome
1: that was an awesome little project.
0: You got to go sailing with your mom yeah. The woman who's taught most of uh, most of, well, she's probably taught more people to sail than anyone. Is that right? I'd have to think so. How many I'd, people is she taught to sail?
1: Like somewhere between thirty three and thirty five thousand people. That's at once? No, I'm joking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she's got a loud enough voice to teach them all at once. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Now, <yeah, yeah. laughs> no, but like, um, but the craziest thing about that is that like with the school that she's run, she's she's taught hands on every single. Person. She hasn't had other instructors or you know anyone else. If you went to the Penny Whiting Sailing School, you were taught to sail by Penny Whiting. That was
0: so. Your mom's name is Penny Whiting, and yeah. it's the Penny Whiting Sailing School, and That's she's right. published books on sailing.
1: Uh, yeah, four or five books. Yep.
0: And and your family has a long history. So she's at the at the Royal Yacht Squadron. Is that right?
1: Yep. She's been based. She was the first. Female member of the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron. Royal New Zealand
0: Yacht Squadron, (laughs) (laughs) which is where the America's Cup is currently being homed. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Somebody won it last uh, from New Zealand.
1: Yeah. They did. The boys did
0: it. (laughs) And you've actually been part of a winning America's Cup team. How old were you when when you were part of that team?
1: Um, So I started off when I was 16. Yeah. So I was straight out of school under the tutelage of Blake and and into it. Yeah. So I I had a great privilege to be... um, you know, uh, under some incredible mentors and, and role models, you know, like being trained up by the guys that I literally looked up to in the sport. Yeah.
0: And so let's, let's get into that a little bit. I mean, this, you know, this podcast is all about helping people break through barriers in their life, um, to give people a little bit of background about you, uh, you won an America's, you're part of an America's cup team that won the America's cup when you're quite young. <coughs> Was it? the <coughs> Excuse me. Is that the youngest anyone's been who's been on America's Cup team?
1: Yeah, I think probably. Yeah, yeah.
0: There aren't a lot of sixteen-year-olds on the on the America's Cup team.
1: Yeah, there was not a lot. But I, I think one of the interesting statistics when I was that young was that I was it was ten years before there was anyone older than me in the America's Cup. So I was like the junior in the team for ten years. So I was twenty-six <laughs> for, for a decade. Yeah, for a decade. And at
0: twenty-six. You're still the youngest.
1: Yeah. Well, twenty-six. I think we might. I think someone in the team turned out might have been like twenty-three. But it took ten years. <laughs> 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 to not doing the youngest, and um, and you've you've
0: raced and won a lot of different categories. In fact, you're going from Laguna, you're, or from Southern California. You're flying actually today to Majorca to the to the worlds.
1: Yeah, yeah, training in Parma Palma for the Rolex Maxi Worlds, which are in Sardinia in the first week of September.
0: And I didn't realize how out of date some of my sailing knowledge was, which is quite out of date, but uh, I was thinking a maxi was like 80 feet. Like, I thought that was maybe the biggest boats people are racing today, but you corrected me. Um, how big are the boats that you'll be racing in Mallorca and Palma? Uh, the,
1: so the, the class that we're in is basically between 100 and 140 feet.
0: You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's like a should be like a mega ma- maxi. Yeah? yeah, pretty much. And the one you're racing is actually, it's not like a lot of times when people are racing boats, they're racing like these carbon fiber hulls that are completely gutted out with barely like a head and some hammocks inside the boat you're racing on is a little nicer than that on the interior Yeah,
1: pretty much the entire fleet is like that up here this is what sets it apart is something so unique is these boats have got like literally italian interiors and <laughs> <laughs> so they're, like, they're like these
0: massive 140 foot yachts that have just totally gooched out interiors, yeah. and you're racing them, putting them on on the on, on on a keel.
1: Yeah. So I mean, when I you know like 20 years ago when I was starting, it, you know, the if you went and sailed on one of these big boats, it was pretty slow, boring going. There wasn't you didn't have any other racing sails or anything. Now we sail yeah. these things like like a TP 52, like in right. the grump, you know, the super series. Yeah. yeah. And that's you know, we race them so so hard we're peeling between different sails we're sort of like racing around corners doing you know dropping the spinnaker with with drop systems and you know it's pretty pretty full on it's it's pretty impressive now the technology where it's all gone and do these do these um this
0: may be getting a little technical for a lot of our listeners but you know from when i started racing sailboats and probably when you did there was a somebody on the foredeck that was had a spinnaker pole and you were you know when you were jiving you would change the spinnaker size. There's a lot of work on the foredeck. Yeah, I'm assuming on a 140 foot boat, there's no spinnaker pole. No, it's all
1: bowsprit. It's it's the all same bowsprit. as a team Like I don't yeah. know if, if people have been following a lot of the stuff that you do in the super series, and they know you know mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. XS has been sponsoring. So basically, it's a, like a super yacht, luxury version of the TP 52, just twice the size. Do do most luxury sailboats run spinnakers? Um, when, well, no, no, typically not. They're,
0: so these guys build these boats to that so they can cruise on them and enjoy them but also so that they can race them
1: yeah
0: that's pretty cool yeah. um so so let's go through some of the, some of your your history because i think it's really fascinating and then i want to get to your your current history particularly with uh with your new wife jasmine and some of the things that happened since i saw you in when wait, wait when were we in auckland we were there in like april or march yeah Jennifer. something like that it was I, like early it was, fall right it
1: was early fall yeah because yeah For, that's, That's right, right we sailing. Um, here. I sailed that boat up to Tonga straight after all yeah. like, well, the day.
0: Yeah, we literally had shot our, our last shot. episode with you, and then you basically got off the boat and jumped on a massive catamaran. How big was that? It was
1: 110 foot.
0: 110 foot catamaran. Yeah. And just sailed it from Auckland up to Tonga, yeah, which literally. is yeah, in the Polynesian <laughs> island change, yeah. right? Yeah, five days at sea. Five days at sea, mm. yeah. That's a day in the life of, uh, of Carl, yeah. Carl Tiny Williams. So, um, so you start, how did you get into, how did you be, how did you decide that sailing was the thing that you were going to apply yourself to?
1: That's a good question. Um, cause I, you know, I was, um, I was at school. I was at a really top New Zealand private school. It had a lot of different opportunities with rugby and cricket. And I was actually swimming when I was at school, um, competitively. And, uh, as I'd always been a sailor because it's such a part of our you know our family and what part of the DNA part of the DNA and what we did in the holidays and and everything else like that but I, as I matured and, and grew up and started looking for what was what opportunities were there um for a career in sport I think I started to gravitate towards sailing quite heavily because of the culture that 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 was there that existed you know sure and um and so I really started to thrive and and uh, appreciate being a part of a, a group and a team and and all that sort of stuff so that was really where it all started and in New Zealand we're so privileged we've got such incredible pathways to become professional sailors you know and that's so that's where it sort of started to... You yeah, know, sailing's
0: a huge sport in New Zealand. Yeah, it is. It's I mean, and it's not just local buoy racing, but a lot of the great blue water racers, whether it's around the world, the Whitbread Cups, or the different, like, I guess it's called the Volvo now. Yeah. But the, a lot of them have historically been New Zealand, like, disproportionately large percentage.
1: Yeah, huge. Like, So there's a youth development program that um, the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron uh, have called the... Well, it's a youth training program, and it's um, from... About 17 years old to 20. Okay. And uh, I'd, I think if I, I'd have um, in 2007 at the America's Cup in Valencia, yep. I believe there was somewhere between 35 and 40 graduates of that program sailing as America's Cup sailors in the 2007 wow. America's Cup through all the teams. Yeah. And that's just Kiwis, you know? Right. So that was a real key part of my learning process was going into that program under harold bennett who was like um in charge of running all the racing by then in valencia but so he was you know chasing us around in his chase boat and all these like kind of teenagers (laughs) (laughs) with too much energy and yeah yeah, out there mucking around yeah yeah What, what,
0: what did you start racing what were the first boats you were on uh so i was a big kid um, yeah, you're, you're a big kid now. How tall are you now? 6'5". Six, 6'5". Five. Six, five. Yeah. If, if you don't mind me asking, what do you weigh right now? I'm
1: like, on oh, pounds or in kilos. In kilos, kilos. hundred and ten.
0: Okay, so that's like two thirty something like that. Yeah, 230, 230, yeah, yeah, somewhere in there. Okay. Yeah. So you're you're a big kid. How big were you when you were sixteen? Uh, or when, when you were starting sailing in the little boats?
1: Yeah. So the, the, this is the issue I had. So when I was um, when I was fourteen. Yeah. I weighed. I was almost 90 kilos. So that's almost uh, almost 200 pounds. Yeah. yeah, and so, and that was the weight that like uh, an, a grown man would sail a laser in. So I'm I'm almost 200. I mean, I'm about.
0: I strive for 90 kilos. Um, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Right. So I was a, so I was really big. So what that meant though was is that the boats that I was um, having to compete in at a really young age was against grown men. Was right. against. So that meant that I spent a lot more time sailing keel boats, like so crewing on on bigger keel boats. right and so as a as a byproduct of that what happened is is that it exposed me at a really young age to like really intense team environments you know so having to be part of uh, an operation where with, people are yelling at each other yeah, and yeah well yeah uh, technically yeah. hopefully not yelling and not doing a job right if everyone's yelling but yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's an expectation there rather than you know, so it's kind of there's like... There's an intensity level on boats yeah, when you're yeah. racing, right? and an expectation. And, you know, everyone's sort of, you're all part of a, an intricate machine and you've got to hold your end. And so from a very young age, I was, you know, made, I was susceptible to this sort of environment, which definitely is a big part of what's shaped the way that I am today, for sure.
0: Working in adults, intense adult situations uh, yep. kind of raises the level of
1: expectation to how you're going to perform yourself. Yeah, there's that. And then there's also the, the aspect of seamanship, which is sort of the the essentially the common sense of the sea you know right. so it that pretty much precedes everything else so it's what keeps each other safe on board the boat is if if someone's not sort of operating with a level of seamanship then generally they you know you could be put in, regardless of performance you could be putting someone at risk by just being making mistakes or being yeah, exactly
0: what um, While we're talking about that, you you had a tragedy fairly early um, in your life. Uh, You had, I think, some uncles that uh, were on a blue water crossing and and had some difficulty.
1: Yeah, so uh, the family um, was, uh, we had whiting yachts, so we built um, keel boats, and my uncle was, uh, so my grandfather was sort of building the boats, and my uncle was um, designing them, and they're achieving a huge level of success both in the sort of the blue water cruising boat that they would you know so my um, grandfather sailed around the world um, on his 47 foot keel boat that the family had designed and built and everything like that and then my uncle paul who was sort of striving to sort of achieve like success in a competitive sense was designing some really fast boats and they won a quarter ton world champs and corpus christi okay uh, and then they designed and built a half tonner a one tonner sorry that they won the sydney to hobart race oh, wow. in 1980 and then it was sailing home from from that sydney hobart race so from hobart back to auckland there was a small fleet of about eight boats and um ironically the cyclone paul that um, my uncle paul was lost at sea sort of oh, basically wow. three quarters of the way back to auckland
0: and was that an experimental boat, or is that kind of a new boat that he was testing out? Yeah,
1: it was. Yeah, there was a lot of there's a lot of like there's a lot of controversy and there's a lot of speculation about a lot of things. That it definitely he definitely was pushing the envelope, and you know there was, you know there was there's a fair bit of scandal in some senses actually around that because there was a lot of people that didn't agree, and there was people that wanted to push those sort of envelopes and yeah you know and sailing and all sorts of things. You know it's all about. Paul really pushed the envelope hard and, and you know, he was, he'd get everything out of anything that he would do. But ultimately what was really happening there is that what he was trying to achieve from a design point of view uh, wasn't matched with the technology that was available. You know? what, so, what year was that roughly? Uh, that was in the 80s. Well, that was nineteen eighty. Okay, so and then, the 70s
0: that's when a lot of uh, technology with, with sailing was changing quite a bit, yeah, particularly exactly. with hull design and hull strengths and things like that.
1: Yeah, so things like, you know, moving into the more composite type materials coming online, but this is all before that, so this was basically you wanted to make something lighter, you just had to use less, less fiberglass. material, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> less, less yeah, thinner plywood or yeah. less glass, yeah, so, you know, so that, it, it, so that you know, that had a, a huge impact on my life, obviously I was only just being born, but there was sort of like this legacy that the family had had created that i was being very firmly pushed towards from a young age and so when i went pro um i was the first family member since paul um to continue competing at, at a, a, professional, at a level. professional level yeah
0: wow so in addition to the america's cup uh what other sailing what what other pinnacles in sailing have you have you kind of hit for yourself?
1: but um, well, the biggest one, you know, probably one of the things I'm most proud of in my career was um, was getting in the Olympic in the Olympic class in the Star class. Um, that's a two-man boat. Two-man Olympic class boat. Yeah. it's been. Um, Explain what a Star class boat looks like for the listener. Well, it's an interesting boat. There is a hard boat. It's like kind of like. <laughs> it's a a funny looking boat it's um very sleek very large sails um low to the water massive sail area massive sail area keel or no keel yeah keel yep keel and um so it's like a they weigh about they're under a ton but maybe about 600 kilos and they were originally designed to sail on lakes they're like a lake boat so they're quite an interesting boat to sail um
0: in open water in open water yeah Yeah. they take a lot of water over the over the bow
1: yeah they and they've been in olympic class they've been in a like an international class um for about 135 years right and all of the like top top sailors had done a taken on a stint in the in in the the star Star class. class so dennis connor and you know um all of the guys you know rod davis and and everything. So Hamish and I got into the star class in two thousand and five, um, with aspirations of qualifying for the Beijing Olympics. Okay. And um, and we won the world, the world champs in two thousand and six in San Francisco. Oh wow! Yeah, outside the Golden Gate Yacht Club. And so we were the first New Zealanders in the one hundred and twenty four year history to win a, a world title in that class.
0: And that's heavy heavier. I mean, the San Francisco yeah. Bay gets a it blows.
1: Tide, yeah, a lot of tide, a lot of wind, and yeah. that was, and then yeah, that was probably one of that was probably for me personally like one of the most significant um, achievements in my sailing career was just because of the you know the two two of us and the amount of work and and, and what we're up against such a high level as a hundred and twenty boats on the start line and that's at the Saint
0: at oh, the Saint Francis Yacht Club and yeah. in Golden, a Golden Gate or Golden, or Golden, Golden Gate. Gate, okay, yeah. So that's yeah. a pretty historic Yacht Club too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's pretty awesome. cool. Yeah. So um, so from there, so you so you win an America's Cup, you win the Worlds. Did you end up going to the Olympics?
1: Yeah, I went to Beijing. Yep. Um, and that was, uh, we went and sort of, rank, I think we were ranked um, that year, I think like third in the world by that point. So it was a couple of years after we'd won the Worlds. We'd still maintained a really competitive level. And... That was probably, you know, I was in my mid-20s then and I'd had a lot of success in my life and I'd have to say like a lot of things had come my way and, you know, uh, talent had really served me well and I was learning how to work hard but um, that was, the Beijing Olympics was probably one of the most significant sort of lessons in my life uh, because of the failure that it sort of presented, you know, so it was like taking... Taking lessons out of something that didn't go the way you'd hoped. Yeah, the way that you'd hoped. You know?
0: This is a question I've had for um, for a number of people who've been here. You know, we all strive for success, and inevitably, part of succeeding is, is failure. Um, do you think you learn more from the wins, or do you think you learn learn more from from the losses?
1: I think absolutely, learn more from the losses. It's something to do with the psychology of how we sort of process things, and. Uh, we tend to, if we, if we succeed, we tend to glaze like... like Just smooth over smooth it. Smooth over maybe details that, you know, that might, uh, could be opportunities to perform or improve better. Um, but when you... But the, the, the downside is, is that you, we can be too critical and, and you need to have a very balanced sort of approach to how you think about things when it comes to analysing a failure. Because what defines a failure, you know, um, is an important important things too so for me that's i've become very like because we haven't talked yet about it but like you know i've gone through some different codes in my career and that was the one of the defining things was like building a system where i could sort of take the wins and the losses and the failures and the successes and put them all in the same pool and analyze them equally and evenly um, is,
0: is this kind of what you call your rough diamond concept? Yeah, absolutely. Is it that is. Part of that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No pressure, no diamond, you know? <laughs> so it's, but it's, I think the key to it is, um, whether it's, uh, competitively or in life or anything, what you've got to be able to do is face the failure or the mistake with some honesty and transparency because it's very easy to like you don't want to sort of admit to what you might have done wrong and for sake of your ego or or pride or whatever else so it's it's about going right what did we actually not get right because if you can face it for what it is you absolutely have the opportunity to gain
0: so it's it's i like to say you know it's it's like doing autopsies on your failures i mean the yeah. A lot of people like to bury their failures as yeah. fast as they can exactly. and move on because yeah. they're unpleasant to spend time on. But yeah. I think when you learn to fall in love with the failure, um, when when failure doesn't mean, um, you know, some kind of personal, um, when, it, when it doesn't become personal, I guess, when you can separate your your person from that, that action or that Absolutely. behavior that you can start to actually learn and, and develop and change. So, so tell me about that process for you. Um, obviously, going from big boats to racing smaller boats would have been a big change. Yeah. It's just two people instead of a bigger crew. What were some of the things that, I mean, obviously very different in the way you were racing and sailing. What were some of the things you learned from Beijing? And then um, maybe f- take us forward and tell me about some of the other sports, because you've won the world in jiu jitsu. You've accomplished a lot in cycling. Tell us how you applied that to other areas of your, of your career
1: yeah i mean i think really what you see in a really raw and sort of honest form when especially when you go to the olympic classes it's such a high level and and it's just when you is really seeing how much of your input equals the output Mm. you know there's not a lot of places to hide there's not other people to do the work for you so that's what i really enjoyed doing it was how hard i trained in the gym. Um, and how fit I got, you really instantly, you could see the results on the water, you know, straight how, away. How much
0: were you, were you training in a gym for racing sailboats?
1: Oh, great. Like back then I was like, it was one of my aspirations to be like the fittest guy out there. And so I was training like, I mean, I was cycling. It was a difficult thing because I was actually doing the America's Cup and the Olympic campaign at the same time. Wow. And so the sort of body type that I needed to be an America's Cup sailor which was like a big strong upper body kind of guy gr- were you a grinder yeah grinder mass man back then
0: so a grinder means you're on these turning two the handles yeah. turning handles very aggressive I mean guys who are grinders like on the yeah. Quantum boat on um, you know in the TP-52s there's a big Italian actually I'm not sure if he's this year but historically he's been on with the Prada boat he's it's on the quantum, it's been on the quantum boat, but you know, it looks, it looks like a massive lineman in, in American football, yeah, yeah. right? It
1: does the same sort of look. Yeah. yeah. And then in the Olympic classes, I didn't need that upper body strength because you were just pulling really thin ropes, but all of the... And you have a light boat that moves a lot if
0: you're too heavy, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. But so it was all leg endurance. Mm. So the tacking, hanging over the side, what we call hiking, hiking and all out. that sort yeah. of stuff. So I was doing, we'd do like an eight week training block with the America's Cup. And then we'd get a break, and I'd just go straight into an eight-week block of Olympic training. Right. And so, you know, we would
0: be so. So hiking out, you're wrapping your legs around a hiking strap, and then you're throwing your butt over the rail, yeah, which requires a lot side. of core strength and a lot of leg strength, yeah.
1: right? So I'd spend like three hours a day with my with my butt and my back, like basically <laughs> three inches above the water, right? Like that, like just like a kind of holding a plank in the gym. But like you know, for the total time, it'd be like three hours. I, I grew up racing
0: scows, which is you know we, we yeah. are, we're hiking all the time on those. That.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. it's it's heinous. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Horrible. <laughs> no, but like the but the thing is, is that I it just <clears throat> it was going from a big team down to a smaller campaign like that. It, you know, learning a lot more of the taking a lot of, lot more of the responsibilities about what was driving performance and taught me. It just I guess it just. I was able to use all the professional aspects of like attitude and um, application from the America's Cup and then apply it to the Olympic classes and that really started to like burn a bit of a fire as far as, oh, there's a real process here to to sort of developing like speed or performance that scene that i sort of was starting to tap into
0: because your, your body literally becomes a part of the boat when you're racing small boats, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, your yeah. movements directly translate into how that boat's going to perform.
1: Yeah, correct. And, and then, and then how you repeat that process and, and then how you analyze it the next day. And so what was actually interesting, and this is where it all started was in order to prepare physically for that, I did a lot of road cycling mm. And so I was doing like three or four hours a day on the bike because we are based in Spain, um, road cycling. And I started to apply the same logics that I was learning through from the America's Cup and into the sailing. I started to apply that to improving my my cycling and getting like a higher quality training ride and whether it was just like, Developing the techniques that I needed and, and all that sort of stuff, and then the, the sort of training regimes. And what actually ended up happening is I ended up transitioning after the, after the Olympics into professional cycling. So,
0: as a, as a six foot five, 230 <laughs> pounds are there a lot of people your size in professional cycling?
1: No, nah, they, they all thought I was absolutely nuts. But to be honest, I dropped, I dropped down. So, I've been as a professional sailor, I've been 140 kilos. So, what's that like?
0: Yeah, that's well two times two point two, so it's like almost. I mean, it's over two hundred eighty pounds, but almost. Yeah. So that was pounds. at my biggest, yeah. and
1: as a cyclist, I got. <laughs> that's down like a to, lineman
0: in American in gridiron football. Yeah,
1: and then as a cyclist, I got down to ninety. Wow, so that's a- my size. That's like about two hundred pounds. Yeah, so that that's that's a fluctuation in like body sizes that I've been through. So Jeez. once I when I did get into cycling. Um, uh, you know, I was still a big guy, but I was incredibly lean and mostly lean muscle, I'm guessing. Yeah. 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 And, but like what I really enjoyed about that was just, there was this pure, uh, I guess sailing's a very open sport. So there's a lot of, a lot of things that, you know, the wind shifts, there's the t- there's tide, there's all sorts of, there's the boat, With cycling. It's a, it's a, it's a, quite a closed sport it doesn't you know there's not a lot of technique it's much more controls it's, yeah it's yeah. just like it's, it's your uh, bike it's you how fit and hard you are which makes it susceptible to a lot of the issues that it has with like um the doping and things like that it's because if if you do that it equals performance right if a sailor did that you wouldn't even be able to tell because if you miss the wind shift, you're still going to come last. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The, 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 well, like I,
0: used to, I, I grew up at a small club that had a lot of, you know, we were racing these scows and a lot, very high performance club. Um, but also we're famous for quality of our sailing and the quality of our drinking, right? We had some heavy partying and heavy <laughs> yeah. sailing, which goes in hand a lot of <laughs> yeah, sailing. But, yeah, like, the, but the funny thing is in sailing, you can kind of do that. And, yeah, you and know get as long as you kinda know bit. what you're doing on the boat, it doesn't really wreck your 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 team that much. I mean if
1: in a way, it's some like in some cases you you know, you wouldn't argue that it helps, but to be honest, <laughs> as, as long as your state of as long as you your state you're of mind, of like, yeah. It's a state of mind and an attitude thing. Yeah. So there's a fine line to balance, but sometimes you can be real like you guys that are really uptight and high strung and
0: you need to relax a little if They if
1: this like just some social time, you know, it helps them like chill out a little bit or maybe you get on with your teammate a bit better. Yeah. So there is that aspect. So it was cycling, it was like, that's the opposite. Like, you cannot be doing that No, stuff, you weren't yeah. even eating, you know, you weren't even eating bread. Right. You know, it was like, well, tomato sauce is off your diet all of a sudden. And for a Kiwi, that's a big deal. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I love looking at the old Tour de France photos where these guys are like
1: smoking. You yeah, know, yeah in, in between legs and stuff like that. Like, hilarious. <laughs> that's just because they were just absolute animals and there's no one crazy <laughs> enough to do it back then. But yeah, so like it was like, <clears throat> so I really enjoyed after learning like what this intense application to apply myself to something was like with the Olympic campaign and then sort of I guess transitioning over to another sport and really applying myself from a physical point of view because I, f- I felt like there was I had some characteristics there physically that were advantageous I was I knew that I was a very fit sort of strong guy so cycling allowed me to sort of sort of uh, delve into that and find out how fit and strong I could get. You know?
0: What kind of racing were you doing?
1: So uh, the original plan was to ride on the track. Okay. And so I st- like in a velodrome? In kind of a velodrome. Setting, yeah. So I started there and uh, did a whole bunch of fitness testing and all that sort of stuff and, and basically got to the point where they're like, right, well, we need, you need to start doing some, some miles and the best way to do that is to start racing on the road. So I got put on a, a road team in Spain. And so my job was just to sit on the front and smash it until we got to the hill and, <laughs> and let and then them go yeah, and yeah. just make sure I made it over the top. <laughs> How many guys are on the team? Uh, I'm on a race. Nine. Okay. Nine, nine guys. But,
0: um, so they'd have you breaking, breaking the wind up front and then people would be trailing you until you got to the hill and then they'd take off past yeah, you.
1: Yeah. And this is where this is what... So that was for the for a year. And then what was really interesting is I had um, some time off and I went back to New Zealand. And this is where my life really changed because all my worlds came colliding together when I got back to New Zealand because I had some downtime and I wanted to do a couple of training races while I was back and in um, cycling. And... I went to do one and I was doing this race and it was like, this was a completely different sport back in New Zealand. It was, um, it was a bunch of individuals racing, um, against each other with no real structure, a lot of talent, hard races, but compared to, you know, the, the organization and the teams and the structure of like European cycling, and and so I saw this incredible opportunity to combine my experience from the Americas Cup and and cycling in Europe and and sort of create my own team. Oh
0: wow! So
1: my focus went away from sort of like my own personal ambitions on the bike because I was only ever going to get so far as a 90 kilo six foot five <laughs>
0: road <laughs> cyclist. You need to build around that, huh? Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. But
1: I so you know so I took that application and sort of and started to. Um, develop a a, a team structure that um, was based off the America's Cup sort of model and applied it to cycling and
0: (laughs) tell me about that specifically how did you how did you build that team
1: yeah so it was there was a real it was like I don't know if you remember the movie the mighty ducks that ice yeah, hockey which is movie. About,
0: about the Anaheim Ducks, which are right yeah. here. Yeah, yeah the, right. the hockey team. Yeah, so basically... A Disney movie. Yeah, literally. Yeah, it's manufactured, by the way.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Go no, ahead. but this... this yeah. the, essentially, it was just like... Uh, I wanted to build a really strong team culture, a bunch of guys that wanted to ride together. Yeah. And so the first thing there was like sort of like um, ironing out or getting you know you didn't want it too much ego in that and so it was going and just i, I had the benefit because i was riding and racing against these guys and i got to test their metal and um i think we were talking about the other night i told you that story where i sat down and i started interviewing riders and um, right 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 it, it would sit down and i'd say first question first question was like do you make your bed in the morning <laughs> <laughs> and why did you ask that question because oh, like, cause, like you know, and they were like, Oh, isn't this? I thought this was an interview about cycling. I was like, of course, it is. You're sitting here because you're a good cyclist, but I want to know what sort of bloke you are. You know, I want right. to know what sort of guy you are, what your attitude is like to life. Like, do you live with your parents? Does mum make dinner every night and do yeah. you not make your bed? Or do you get up in the morning and make your bed? And it was just this, it was a starting point for.
0: How deliberately do you choose to live your life, right? Is that yeah, kind of what you li- were looking for? Uh,
1: absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it was, you know, it was, we ended up building this team um, that you know cut a long story short because it took a few years uh we went through from you know became incredibly dominant in new zealand and then we we brought the team to america and everyone thought we were crazy and we wouldn't achieve any level of success we came and raced the national racing series up here and won some of the biggest races in north america and but you know we had some of the biggest names in the sport coming up and seeing us at the hotel and dinners, you know while we were racing and saying, "How do you get your guys to ride like that for each other?" Wow! You know? And um, it was we just developed this incredibly strong culture based off. It was a ki it was a very Kiwi culture like we had to high that. five. Yeah, I was going to ask
0: because I think I mean you have something going for you in New Zealand too. I think where. You know, maybe where like in the U.S. Obviously, there's a lot of different people with a lot of different attitudes, but we do tend to focus on individual achievement a lot and celebrate yeah. that. Yeah. In my travels, I, I feel like I've noticed, and I think New Zealand has this, and the Netherlands both seem to have this quite a bit. Where if there's somebody who pokes their head up a little too high. There's a lot of people willing to help you remember that you're human like the rest of us and not knock it down. Not, not, and I don't think it's in a bad way. I think it's how you keep a culture that has to rely on each other because you're an island culture. Absolutely. You um, have people remembering that they're part of a team. They're part of a place. Yeah. And it's not just about you, but we're all doing in this together. Absolutely. Is that, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Right? No, it okay. is. It is.
1: I mean, there's downsides to that. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, there's New Zealand's <laughs> c- incredibly notorious for what we call the tall poppy syndrome. Yeah. yeah. You know, but at the same time from a team point of view it was like it was, it was and, and the
0: tall poppy syndrome is if somebody sticks their head up too high you yeah. will lop it off
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no so it's like no but it, in, in a team environment it, it it was just like you didn't what we taught the guys was is that um, you didn't wor- you didn't worry about yourself you worried about your teammate you yeah know? and you covered your teammates back and you worried about your teammate That's and awesome. that teammate covered the next teammate and yeah. then it was and it creates this really impenetrable chain of like teamwork and like you can imagine how hard you could go if you knew that I've just got your back right like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stop and worry about what I'm doing over here right I've just got your back you know and then you're doing the same thing for the next guy and then the next guy it's it, yeah it creates this incredible unity and then it's, and then what happens there? It becomes its own like kind of confidence and strength, and so that's what we developed racing up here. <clears throat> we just became really synonymous for a really aggressive team culture. If you were racing us, you weren't racing one guy; you were racing nine. Everybody, you know, everybody, and uh, um, and we showed that like time and time again, and, and that really became you know our trademark of how we raced was as a group, and we didn't have one guy that. Like, won all our races. We had, you know, I think we, it was sort of eight or nine guys across the season that were, that were taking victories. So. so, has it become kind of a dedication
0: to a mission that you're all unified around? Absolutely. And making sure that when there's a weak link, you're supporting that person and et cetera. I mean, is that, is that am I getting yeah, that right?
1: Absolutely. In Team New Zealand, we called it like, it was essentially like the vision, a vision driven model. Okay. So, it was like at the outset, um, you would, as a court, not just one person dictating it, but like the core group that say, you know, there was a group of like five core guys at Team New Zealand and they'd set out and they'd write like a vision statement. And that wasn't to win the America's Cup. That was, you know, but that was, it was not that specific. It was designed to be like, you know to create a culture of you know of, uh, create a team culture that strives to continually improve and and be the best in the world at what we do that wow. kind of thing you know right not not let you know ego it was war. about
0: winning one trophy or one destination no, it, no, it, was it was about that journey it was journey about, that, it was thing, about
1: yeah. that attitude and and that attitude is what creates this culture right and um and that, and so that, with the cycling team, we had the same thing. It wasn't about going up to win one race. It was we didn't even know if we would be capable of that. Right. But we were going up there to build this 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 team. And 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 create this culture that we could all use to strive and 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 be a part of.
0: Have Have you read Legacy, the book about the All Black culture?
1: No, not yet. I haven't actually. It's good. Yeah, it's, awesome, it's, hey? it's
0: yeah, it's excellent. But I think it's it sounds very similar. Um, maybe I as I was asking that because it sounds like, like maybe something that's. Part of New Zealand excellence. It is, yeah. um, which is you know about the the, the team succeeding, yeah. not about the individuals. In the in the All Blacks, one of the things that um, when new teammates come in, one of the things they'll notice is that the team captain sweeps up the the locker room. Yeah, um, and part of the reason that the team captain does that is to demonstrate that no one's above anything. Everyone is. Um, responsible for every element of the of the team yeah uh, yeah
1: I learned that very that was one of the like one of the first things that I learned by from black you know and this is why I was so lucky again at such a young age and he basically explained why you know one of the most important guys in the whole building was the guy that swept the floor yeah because if that guy and if he's the youngest guy on the team even and he's sweeping the floor and he's got this really really good attitude and he's doing it. Now, if this floor wasn't swept just as well, like just as perfectly, maybe would you notice how well the boat was performing out mm. racing that day? Not no, not it's immeasurable except when you compound and go day after day after day and that guy's doing his job whether he's the top dog or the bottom dog, the attitude that that takes to you know to execute that is contagious. And attitude and this is this is sort of a little bit of like really my secret sauce when it comes to teams is that attitude is not something that is inspired from the top down. Mm-hmm. It's inspired from the bottom up. Right. So if it's a guy who's sweeping the floors doing a really incredible job, he's inspiring the guy that's up and you know above him that might be uh, I don't know emptying the rubbish bins. Right. Right. To, to hold his own because you know he's got someone else that's inspiring him. Below him. And then the whole thing goes. All the way to the top to the guys that are out on the course racing, and and they've got this you've got this contagious sort of incremental effect of, of positive attitude. Leadership is from the top down, absolutely. But attitude is something that you know I learned that it gets has inspired, inspired
0: from the bottom up because
1: anyone it, can be at the top and you know, have a great attitude. But.
0: Well, and I think that's why the leader often needs to be doing some of those humblest tasks Absolutely, with the same attitude they expect other people, right? Absolutely. You have to demonstrate.
1: Yeah, you have to be able to demonstrate. You have to be... If you're not... Yeah, you do. You have to be... I
0: was just trading some comments with one of my cousins this morning about... Um, about some of the work that I've done with Excess at Amway and, um, and programs for some of the new generation of, of, uh, people coming into the business. And we were talking about what they should be doing. And, and, you know, one of the things that I've recommended for anybody coming into work for us is that they all start at the same place that we all start, which is setting up a booth, breaking down a booth, carrying cases, answering the same five to 10 questions, 10,000 times over a weekend. Stuff that isn't necessarily fun, mm. but when you can start to appreciate how important that work is, and you get really good at that, absolutely, then you can actually manage that work, absolutely, right. And I yep. think it's it, it's this it's the same for anybody anywhere. Yep. Um, you've got to have a passion, and you've got to realize the importance of the little things because those little things all end up adding up to a big thing.
1: Absolutely, and they and then and they become a part of what what like become a part of like it's a rite of passage, right. You know? And I think with it's you're reading the All Orbla- with the legacy, or you joining a cycling team, or sailing, or, or or becoming a part of the Xs, you know, it's it's that journey through that rite of passage that takes you from where you are as the new guy to a part of the family. And, right. And then how do you how do you how do you so that rite of passage is critical to anything, and that's what you're sort of identifying.
0: Yeah, and I think I think where we've struggled, where it's hard, is you know, when you get a big organization, you you know, people come in at all different levels, and so. You know, when you get people coming into a big, unusual organization, our business is very different than, than yeah. other people that make consumer goods. Um, to come in at the top and try and just come in to do strategy, when you don't really understand yeah. how the business operates at a small level, it's, it's very difficult to be successful. And yeah. Yeah. You have to really invest yourself in, in, in a learning process to get there, which um, which people who, who do that well tend to succeed with, and people who don't tend to tend to fail around. So, so tell me about. Um, so you you know you have the success in sailing, you transfer that into success in cycling. How did your team do the the New Zealand cycling team?
1: Uh, so I think so. There's like uh, was it twenty teams in the in the national racing um, circuit here in uh, in the states. So that was like the pin, our pinnacle year yeah. when we came up here. Um, sort of the critics sort of said that would be. Lucky to win a race and we'd be outside the top 15, you know, the bottom five. And we finished the season, I think, with, um, nine major victories, like a handful of smaller ones. And we were one of the top five teams.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Like that's, it, yeah. that's amazing. It
1: was amazing. It was honestly, it was, it, I've, I have a photo of, um, of one of the writers, um, approaching the finish line of Redlands, which is just... Yeah, yeah. Like, just, just east yeah. of here. Yeah. So there's a tour there that's one of the biggest, um, apart from after the tour of California, um, in this area is like one of the biggest tours. And the last day is a criterium around the city of Redlands. Okay. And there's a photo of the rider approaching the finish line at one of our guys about to win the race and he's got his arm in the air like celebrating and I'm in the front of the photo and it's a, it's a blur, I'm blurred out, I'm out of focus cause he's in it and I've got my arm up too. And honestly, I put that photo up when I've spoken before and said, this is one of my proudest moments as a, as an athlete. Yeah. And I wasn't even on the bike or I wasn't <laughs> even on the boat. I was standing right, right, there. Right, right. I was a manager. I was privileged enough to have a front row to see, right. but just, being a part of that whole journey from like building that team you know and us all getting like when we we flew up from new zealand and thought we'll do a bit of training at altitude so we'll go up to big bear and we were here so early that and it's like
0: it's a it's a ski resort yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but it was no and it's so we were up there meant to be training for two weeks we got snowed in for 10 days oh my goodness you know but just but this was the adversity it bonded us as a team you know right. we had to figure out other ways to spend time mm-hmm. nobody panic and it was just this crazy journey and so and then it culminated in, in winning that race in Redlands and, and then it went on for the rest of the season. So that was like such an incredible, such an incredible thing.
0: So you, you, you had the success in sailing, you all the success in, in uh, cycling, which is both in a lot of ways about building teams and, and team victories. What, what pushed you then to shift and how did you make that transition into jiu jitsu?
1: Yeah, it's a pretty strange one. It's like everyone thought it was weird enough that it was a sailor was taking on cycling, and then and the same guy <laughs> announces that he's changing to mixed martial arts. And but, but it
0: makes sense that you went into cycling in order to get your leg strength up yeah, and to lean it down. Did. it did. Jiu-jitsu, I'm, I'm, still, I don't, I, I'm not sure I know why you moved to jiu-jitsu. <laughs> I'm, just, I, I'm very curious. I think it's a really interesting transition. Uh,
1: it's, I mean the simpler levels to it is that is that like i am absolutely addicted to challenges (laughs) (laughs) and and with challenges comes learning and i really really appreciate learning things you know so i believe that there's a there's a an intrinsic nature in developing as there's we have an intrinsic nature to become better i believe you know And, and so by learning something new that, that provides that opportunity,
0: human progression,
1: human progression. I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's natural. It's like, it's, it's, you know, as we, we go through life, I think there's other things in society now that sort of stem that or, or dampen it down, but I've always just had this, um, this aspiration to, to want to to learn and progress and, 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 do better.
0: Were you a fighter? Did you fight as I a never kid? Never fought ever. Never right? fought. Never fought. Not even in a in a sailing brawl.
1: No, was actually <laughs> like this is one of the strangest things. I'm a lover, not a fighter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm too big. I've never needed to.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so if someone's challenging, gonna take you on. They've they've already crossed the line somewhere else.
1: Yeah. So and you
0: really haven't you hadn't been in fighting school or
1: no no nothing. Okay. No, no. So and obviously and then all my. Everything was, you know, my background in sport up until that point was was primarily was all team-based as well. And jiu-jitsu provided a really different um, avenue to explore. Individual sport. Individual combat sport. Very, very technical. Um, again, I'm, I'm attracted to things that have a strong element of culture. Yeah. You know, I, I, that is definitely something that really cycling... Obviously, the culture that's coming... You're talking about guys doing the Tour de France smoking cigarettes through to <clears throat> the Tour de France today. You know, like, the, the culture within cycling is, is, is equal to sailing.
0: I, I forgot to ask, what kind of doping were you doing when you were winning all these events? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Clean air. Clean air, yeah, that'll get you every time. Yeah, uh. yeah. No, so, the um, the with jiu-jitsu, it was, it was like a freakishly scary kind of ambition or goal to set as far as um how hard it was going to be I did
0: you go into jiu-jitsu thinking you were going to compete at a high level or a, a planning to to compete at a high level
1: uh, I don't, yeah, I don't really go into anything without that.
0: But you also surf. I know you surf. Yeah, do you I, do that mainly for fun? or? Do yeah.
1: You, yeah. It's yeah. a good quit That's a fair action. that's a really good point. Surfing for me is always, I've always been able to maintain it as that kind of like pure passion sport
0: and place not, to go clear your head. Yeah and, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: and it's been, that's been sacredly that way for me. Um, I've always wanted to get a lot lot better yeah sure yeah, you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always want to always want a deeper barrel or <laughs> right. you know I want to surf a bigger wave but um, I guess it's always it's always had its place there for me um, the surfing like that but with the jiu-jitsu I can tell this funny story where I was just starting and um, I'd spoken to I hadn't told anyone what I had, what the idea was and I was I think it was about nine months before the world champs and i hadn't trained a single day and uh, i joined the gym and they said yeah sweet um you can come and start Uh, the adults beginners class is on at 8 p.m monday wednesday friday night And I remember being like five minutes late because I got the trainers like yelling at me, Come on, dude, you're late, get on the mat. And everyone was running around the mat. And I was, and there's no disrespect to the group that was there, everyone's there, great attitude, and training on a Wednesday night at 8 p.m. And it was dark and cold and stuff. But, and I was running around the mat with like sort of some middle aged housewives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a couple of overweight guys that were there to lose a bit of weight. And I'm going, Wow, this is my first day towards trying to win a world title. (laughs) It's pretty. But it's humbling, you know, and I think that's like, I think conquering your ego and, and, and inserting yourself in, like you say, like with sailing, I started at the bottom and I had to really, you know, earn my stripes through. Cycling was the same. But
0: you did it at a young age.
1: I did it at a young age. But so that was, I was trained to do it. Cycling, I just went in and just trained hard. I didn't, you know, there was no just the attitude was I'll start at the bottom and work my way up. And then in jiu-jitsu it was the same thing. I just went and started at a beginner's and I just started at the bottom and worked my way up. Same thing you're talking about with the excess how many, thing.
0: How many days a week were you doing jiu-jitsu when you just you know once you decided, "Hey, I'm going to actually go for this?"
1: Yeah, like once I got into it I was training um, I was training twice a day. Wow. A so I was training uh, do 2 hours in the morning and 2 to 3 hours at night. And then Was it the
0: same place you started?
1: It was, yeah. Until I um, came up to the states and did a couple of weeks down in San Diego, which is like a real mecca for jujitsu down yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. And
0: was it with Gracies or somebody like yeah, that? Yeah, it was
1: actually with the Gracies. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I, uh, that was there where I like that was where I found my home to base myself for the worlds and. Um, I, I went fairly over the top with this, I came back up, I went home and sort of got all my affairs in order and sort of things like that and then flew back, so a couple of weeks later flew back to the States and basically spent the last six weeks before the world's based
0: Just training, training. Just
1: training. And that was, like I was training over eight hours a day, you know.
0: Did you have to change things you had learned in New Zealand? When you got to the US, were there differences, or were there different techniques, or things where you had to change your techniques?
1: Yeah, the uh, the biggest one, to right. be honest, was uh, was learning how to fight bigger guys because I was the I was so much bigger than everyone. Mostly in New hobbits Zealand. in New Zealand, right? Yeah, lots of hobbits. <laughs> <I'm joking. laughs> so there was, and obviously going to the worlds, I was going to be fighting guys my size or bigger, yeah. and, and and every it, it, so learning to fight bigger bigger guys was a big part of it. But I went. It was. Yeah, it was pretty extreme. I sort of I pulled together and I pulled every single trick in the book that I had from 20 years of experience in professional sport. And so, like, I knew that there was a threshold of how fit I needed to be. Um, there was, uh, the best example of how I broke the sport down, for example, is that in jitsu you know, is a ground game, except you start on your feet. Right. So, the first part of the fight is technically judo right right which is the this striking and with, throwing, with yeah. The throwing yeah throwing yeah throwing okay. to the ground now
0: is, is there striking or is it mainly just no, throwing
1: it's all it's all throwing and okay. then chokes and, and joint locks and things like that but okay and so the thing was is that there was no way in the time frame that i had to be able to master judo and jujitsu and when you start a fight in jujitsu if you're throwing if, like if i threw you to the ground that's three points for me so now I have an advantage. Right. Plus, you're on your back in a disadvantaged position because I've put you there, right?
0: How many points are there in a match, typically? It
1: uh, can go up to, like... I mean, you can score in threes, twos, and ones, and it will go can go up... Could uh, You could win a fight 3-0, like that low score. It right. could be up in the, like, high teens. Okay. And so what I did was is I I knew that I couldn't master that aspect of the fight and develop my jiu-jitsu game because I just didn't have enough time so when I was preparing I would all my training fights I would start the fight three points down and on my back mm. so when it came to the actual worlds if I was taken down it wasn't like uh-oh I'm in trouble here I was like this is where I actually learned how to start you're always going
0: to be starting at a three-point deficit on yeah, your back
1: exactly so um was just, there was just there's a lot of aspects like that that I started to apply and
0: does that work in your marriage as well? <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's way more points on the line. <laughs> way more points on the line. So, yeah. So I pulled a lot of tricks out and and, and tapped into a lot of visualization and, and, and mental preparation and 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 start, and overcame and, and and crossed a lot of lot of barriers. It was an exciting exciting experience and. Um, it was an interesting one though. we talked about the other night, like, you know You ended up winning the world. Yeah, I ended up winning that world title, ultra heavyweight, in you know, seven sudden death fights in one day, I was the only Kiwi there. It was a pretty surreal day. And it was so it was like it was it was ultimately a victory and but it was in a lot of ways personally and there's this is a you know, another part to my life that it was it was somewhat of a failure, though, too. You know, because of the sacrifice that it took for me to to get to that point. There was other things that I that I missed out on, or lost out on, or sacrificed as a result of that. And it was a really, really a critical turning point in my life.
0: There's two photos that you showed me um, just before they announced that you won, and then after they announced you won. Do you want to walk us through those?
1: Yeah, it's just um, it was. I'd already I know I already knew that I. It's the weird thing with I visualized everything to such an extreme level that once the f- earlier fights panned out the way that I kind of felt like they were going to go, I knew that I was on this track. I was fit enough. My skill level was high enough and I was, you know, I was, I was locked on. And so I kind of, not in a cocky way, but just knew that I was going to win. So by the time I won the final fight, it wasn't any sort of huge rush of emotion or, or anything. It was just this kind of like, Realisation that I'd that I'd done it, you know.
0: You um, actualized the goal effectively. Yeah,
1: essentially, it? yeah. And it was, yeah, it was it wasn't it wasn't a happy feeling to be honest. It was it was it was a, it was almost a sadness, you know. It you was,
0: you had reached this pinnacle. Yeah. You had done all the things you had set out to do, mm, and, and the destination wasn't delivering what you had hoped for.
1: Well, I guess yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It was just one of those things. That it was you know the the sacrifices that I'd made to get to that point and and everything I guess I was it was an important lesson I was it taught me to read really to look at and, and carefully define what success means because that was success in the sense of a world championship but it wasn't success in the form of like what was important to me in my life you know
0: the, there's a there's a play that my friend Rob Bell has been working on with another friend of mine Pete Holmes, and it's about it's about climbing a mountain for success, and about <laughs> these people who are all climbing it and doing it for different reasons. And most of them are very upset when they get to the top because it wasn't what they had hoped for where there's another guy who's just been kind of wandering around taking all this time enjoying the journey and when he gets to the top he doesn't even realize he's at the top and he's just the happiest guy up there
1: So it's so funny that you bring that analogy up because that when i show people that photo and and i'm on the podium and i've got this kind of weird bewildered look on my face and they're like what's going on in your head at that point you should be like smiles ear to ear i'm like i know to be honest, honestly set out to climb this mountain you know and I got to the top I'd reached ultimate success and I was at the top and I looked out off the top of this mountain and I realized oh wow I'm at the top of the wrong mountain you know yeah it was just this complete like
0: what what were some of the things that you traded for that you know to climb that ladder what were some of the things you, you traded that you wish you hadn't
1: um I would say uh well there was family was a big one you know where I was at with my with the age of my kids and you know, that sort of thing. Um, and then there was other things just to do with my career. It was, like, you know, just... I mean, I don't regret anything. That's the thing. Everything's, like, we all learn. Yeah. All learn. But I don't... You know, I think that I question my motives to the extent of, like, why, you know, why was I so driven? Why did I need to win something to feel successful, you know? I yeah. think, and that was, like, coming back to how I, you know carefully defined success now you know i think i got a little too caught up in my own ego and needed to feel like i was still capable of being a world champion and you know so there was there's was great aspects to applying that to a different sport but as far as the intense sacrifice professionally because it took me away from other parts of my career and things like that um and then and then family time as well you know what was important to me
0: and so now you've you're you're leading team in the world, mm. and. Uh, for the for the maxi yachts, yeah, how are you? How are you defining success for that?
1: Um, so defining success for that is is about um, bringing. We've got a new group of guys um, that we're bringing together, and I've got a role on board as a crew boss. So, sort of my. What's res- a crew boss? Crew boss is essentially. Uh, the guy with the loudest voice. <laughs> I'm there to sort of to sort of get the synergy going between all the different roles. So you've got the guys that are driving the boat and deciding where it goes, and then you've got the guys that are sort of doing all the work, so to speak. And and so crew boss is there to sort of tie those two things together and get everything working.
0: Make sure you have a, a team synergistically element too. Yeah. as
1: possible. And so you know, for me, success. Like um, we've got like some goals. This is at the boat's first world, so we're not strictly up to sort of to win but to have a successful event's gonna be about like have, being able to come in and, and, and know how the day went and why and you know and just and sort of have that process and, and feel like we're we're developing and setting up a, a platform for
0: So win, yeah. lose or draw, you know why it happened and Absolutely. you know how to how to how people can improve. do better. Yeah, improve, improve improve
1: the boat and improve the team and
0: That's awesome. Yeah.
1: So that's and for me, that's a big part of like now what I really am aspiring to do and, and enjoy helping other teams and other groups do is like feel like they're sort of establishing a platform that they can sort of progress and develop, you know, together. I think that's really a big part.
0: So let's, let's shift um, shift gears a little bit here. Pat Parnell and I were in New Zealand we were looking for... Sailing is a big part of New Zealand culture. We wanted to do an interview with somebody as part of the outside TV, yeah. XS outside TV thing. Obviously, yeah. XS sponsors the 52 Super Series with Rolex. and uh, So I think we got to you through a connection through the TP52s. Is that right? Mm, yeah. Was it through Lars, maybe, yeah, or somebody? Yeah, it was
1: yeah, through Lars. Lars yeah.
0: Um So we meet you, and uh, you and your mom took us out sailing. And... Um, and then I hadn't seen you since then. I think we had dinner one night while we were there. Maybe we went to see the Warriors uh, play yeah, the rugby is, or something. Yeah,
1: Warriors. Dinner. Parents about it, Yeah.
0: And then uh, take me. So so last Friday, I uh, Pat and I were saying we were trading some messages, and so you guys, you said, "Hey, I'm coming. I'm in town with my wife. I'll come up." Yeah. And I vaguely remembered when we were with you last time that I thought you were single. So in my mind, I'm like, "Oh, maybe he got together with his ex-wife. You know, who knows." <laughs> Because it wasn't that long. It was like no, 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 less than no. a year ago. Yeah, that's um, true. Is that right? About, yeah. yeah. No, more, it was now, no, it was more than a year ago. It was 18
1: months ago. Something 18 like months
0: ago, sorry. So so then we sat down, had a little cocktail, and um, quickly I discovered some things that happened in the last 18 months. <laughs> 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 yeah. Tell us what's happened in your life in the last 18 months, because I don't want to ruin this. I, I think we want to hear it from you. Uh.
1: That I mean. Um, so
0: January a year ago was yeah, it?
1: Yeah, pretty much. So I guess um, I uh, where do you start? I um, I guess I was faced. I started facing some personal issues around my health and things like that. I'd, I'd lived a pretty busy, intense, full-on life, and maybe hadn't been looking after myself as well as I should have been. Okay. You know, just sort of like foot to the you know foot to the floor kind of thing. Yeah. And um, I was. So I was trying to sort of bring myself back to sort of an equilibrium that was like a good, healthy balance. And uh, um, what happened is actually, I guess one of the first things was, was I, we didn't really go into too much depth, was, but was, I'd been on this sort of spiritual journey where I was like, it's been a bit of time in Thailand and meditating and doing a Vipassana and all that sort of stuff. And so it was the first big thing that happened in my life after I caught up with you guys. Is I um, I went to up to Costa Rica and did ayahuasca. Okay. Yeah.
0: Which is a, it's a psychoactive, uh, it's, a, it's a psychedelic, uh, natural psychedelic drug. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. yeah. That and, they, and what what was that experience like?
1: That was incredible. It was the most profound experience of my life. It was, um, it you know, it takes a lot. Of preparation to get there you've got to have a lot of the right intentions and and you know it's not something that you just kind of it's not a party drug it's not a party drug it's it's like for me personally it felt like i was taking medicine for the first time in my life um you do it over a week you do it five times over seven days it's a very very intense journey it's how, how long
0: does it last if you when you when you when you're start it? at
1: seven o'clock at night and you when you when you drink it and um, guided through the entire night by, by your shamans and you normally about 2, 3 in the morning you'll sort of start to come come out of it so it's a long intense journey and you know in some respects it's it can be the most horrific experience of your life it's so intense but then there's other parts of it just make it like so, so like many incredible. psychedelic
0: experiences, I think you're explaining that you, you need to be mentally prepared to go into yeah, yeah, it yeah, yeah. Absolutely. because whatever's going on up in your head is what's going to be expressed and amplified in most yeah. cases, right? Absolutely, I mean, that's, yeah. it starts to show you yourself. Yeah, it is that does. right?
1: Yeah, it does. It does. It really does. And so <clears throat> it was, it was incredible. It was really amazing and it gave me a lot more strength and confidence to look inwards. Um, It taught me a lot about how we appreciate life and probably again success is from the outside in it's like you're trying to achieve something to make yourself feel better versus that from the inside out what am i doing you know to make the world better or you know my presence better and all that sort of stuff so it's it's been
0: a big topic on this podcast um we talk about meditation i've had people who do meditation on here we talk about books we read that you know the interior journey is at least equally important to the exterior journey
1: uh, i think i mean is that, that right is that fair? yeah i think they're they're equal and opposite you know they, right. they they rely on each other and so much of what's on the exterior we just take for granted is where it's actually all coming from right and i think but i just do i do think that where things need to stem from the stem from the right place like again like the jujitsu thing with the success and the world champs and that was me aspiring to be taking something from the outside to make myself feel good on the inside.
0: And it didn't do much for the inside. No, it
1: did the opposite, you know. And so the versus like really being in touch and in tune with yourself from the inside and understanding what it is that, you you know, important to you to achieve. And then, because then, you know, one of the most important parts to life is, without saying too cliche, is love and connection and, and the sure. other people that we share with, you know. And, then, and so if, if you're coming from the right place, you're going to have such an incredibly more positive effect on your environment. And, that's gonna, and then the, that environment becomes your exterior that helps you enjoy your life. It becomes, it
0: becomes apparent that that's all working on the inside. Exactly.
1: So So, yeah, so, so you're was, working
0: on your interior life at this point. And then was that when you had the stomach problems?
1: Yeah. So then I'd had, I had the stomach problems prior, but in preparing for the ayahuasca, Um, which took about three months of pretty intense diet and things like that. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: Like, what's the diet change? Uh,
1: So you progressively cut out um, meat, um, carbohydrates. You eventually uh, don't use any salt. Or spices, or anything on your foods. You know, oh, you wow. take away caffeine, um, alcohol, everything. So it's basically you just what, go. To, what would I eat or drink? <laughs> <laughs> you can steam some vegetables yeah. <laughs> and drink some water. But like it's, you basically just completely remove anything that would be anything of a stimulant, like a, or a like sort of less, like you know.
0: So you're kind of de- you're effectively detoxifying yourself as yeah, much as you can.
1: Exactly, and what that's doing is that's like. Creating this baseline that where the only thing that is sort of there to sort of like stimulate stimulate is is the medicine. The ayahuasca you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're not, and um, so that that was a pretty intense process. And um, what that uncovered was some some physical issues that I had with my stomach. And so uh, after I came back from Costa Rica, I started suffering a bit um, physically from some, not from the medicine. It was much more to do with just actually having a very clean diet and um i was having digestion problems and um ingestion problems and things like that had an endoscopy and and had discovered that i had a really severely ulcerated stomach and esophagus from sort of like you know not really looking after my not really looking after myself okay um and Sort of being a stubborn Kiwi, had sort of set it apart and just do not worry about it, and it's completely normal to choke on some food and not be able to breathe for a minute while you're eating. Oh but, boy, yeah, yeah, that yeah kind yeah. of thing. A year ago, but you know, it all came round, and and so I was faced with another really harsh reality where I had to sort of revisit and everything in my life as far as like what was um, what it was all about. With faced with the reality of that, that I had to you know have my stomach removed. And like you
0: literally have no stomach. No, nah, it's gone. So So your intestines are doing all the digestion for yeah. you at this point.
1: Yeah. And and so you go straight back to the beginning of like, um, relearning how to drink and, and eat and what you're putting into your body now has become super hypersensitive and you've got to take really good care. Uh, and even down to the, the, the quantity of food that I can eat is completely radically changed. And, um, how,
0: how much are you? I mean, you're eating very small portions at this point. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. When, when we went to dinner Friday night, and and you and Jasmine like shared some scallops, which to yeah. me looked like a very small meal. Yeah.
1: Um, on a good, if, if I, you know, if I, uh, you know, I could eat maybe. 100, 150 grams of, like, of a really clean high-fillet steak. Okay. You know, and a few vegetables. That'd be a pretty big meal, you know? It's but, probably good
0: for all of us to think about eating like that. No, no, it is. It is, it is. It's just that... Do you, it's, do you have to chew at your food more and do things like that? Yeah,
1: yeah, you do. I do. I don't always get it right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jason knows the look when, <laughs> when I say, like, I guess I must just days off because you can say, oh, oh it's stuck. <laughs> and uh, I guess, yeah, it's it's just... There, there, there's been parts of my life that I've just sort of just blazed through and not, and been a bit nonchalant about and definitely like dietary and, and I've just kind of always not really thought a lot about it. You know, I didn't drink through my twenties Okay, drink alcohol. So, um, through my, that part of my professional career, you were um,
0: sober at that point.
1: Yeah. I was sober at that point. Um, so from 19 to, to 29, I, um, didn't just, drink. Yeah. Took that, that choice on and, um, but there was, you know, but there's just been other aspects of just not taking the right sort of care and, and all that sort of stuff. And so that that really was like a bit of it highlighted that, you know, we, you know, input equals output. <laughs> got to yeah, look out and you
0: stuff. said you took some a few months, or you went down to Gisborne where you're.
1: Yeah. Right. So like, there's so many things that the doctor stipulated had to be different. Yeah. Um, in my life. Uh, that it was what I realized was such a big part of contributing to that it was the environment that I was in and, and what I was around and and so I just decided to you know to to change it up and take myself offline for a little while and, and go and spend some time at the beach and,
0: and that's a coastal town on the South Island, right?
1: Uh, it's on the North it's Island. It's on the North Island, it's, okay. It's, might as well be the South Island. It's that far to it's, get to. It's the far so, end, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a long way. To, it's a long drive from Auckland. It's a long hard actually a long hard drive from anywhere, but it's a very <laughs> So it's very raw. It's the rough diamond of New Zealand, I like to say. It's very yeah. raw and sort of somewhat untouched and beautiful, very spiritual place. And, uh, you know, I'd say the best waves in the country. Um, there'd be some argument there, but yeah. <laughs> but so just, And just got into a routine down there and surfing every day and... Eating better and... Yeah, and eating better and all that sort of stuff. And,
0: so that was January... Yeah. Right. Is that yeah, right? When's yeah, the surgery yeah, yeah, run right? January yeah, yeah, last year? Yeah,
1: January. Yeah, January this year.
0: And then you and Jasmine just got married in when was it? July. In July. J- in July? Yeah. So you had been dating for what six or eight months? <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: I <Six> actually <laughs> right. know the answer to that. Six.
1: Six or eight days.
0: Six or eight, <laughs> eight days. How how did you? So you you had. Um, you were married before. You have yeah. how many kids do you have on your first marriage? Three,
1: three kids. Three, three kids. kids. Married for living years.
0: Jazz is sitting here. Jazz, how many kids do you have? I have two. You have two. Mm-hmm. So, how did you guys meet again? <laughs> <laughs> do you want to go into that? I don't, I don't want to. Ask no, you. of course. Yeah, okay.
1: no. no, no, totally. It was because
0: um... it was funny that you co- you had come yeah. to the house. The First thing you're just like, oh yeah, hey, you know, a couple things have happened. Uh, yeah. Lost my stomach and got married. Got married. Tonight. Got a new wife.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Jazz came. St- came, we came sort of crashing in together, really, lives collided. Um, another big part uh, to this story that, as well, one of the other, you know, in the space of a year, so much happened. The other thing was, is that, you know, I um, decided that I was going to continue mum's sailing school. Um, as she retires out of it, I was going to... How, how old's your mum now? Uh, 70,
0: 70. 70. So, <laughs> you know, as things go, being, I mean, she's, she's... <laughs> Very happy. She seems to be very happy on a boat, but maybe yeah. she doesn't want to do the the teaching all day every every day anymore. Is that is that she's yeah, shifted exactly. gears a little bit? Yeah, yeah, big
1: time. And and it there's always really been there's only ever really been one person that was ever going to continue it. Yeah. Um. And that was me. And and I've run around and done lots of different things with all my different tangents. But a big part of the reflection of my life and some of the things that I've been through recently, um, it brought me back down to ground and and so uh i bought a boat um a couple of months ago a 55 foot kind of a special boat. one right yeah a special one special name
0: emotional rescue emotion it's it was already named i want to be clear about this it was already named emotional rescue was, before you bought it It
1: was already named emotional rescue before <laughs> i bought it
0: <laughs> and then um and, and why is this boat special to you there's a little history to it right yeah
1: i mean it was When i was growing up um, and you were talking about what sort of boats was i sailing and i was too big to sail on dinghies emotional rescue was the latest and greatest race boat in in new zealand and it was the boat that went off to hawaii to do the Kenwood cups and, and all that sort of stuff. And it was like the rockstar boat. It was, you know, and so if I used to have a, ch- a Navy hull and yeah, the Navy hull. It was at the yeah. Rolling Stones lips on, yeah, on, on, on the, on the stern. Yeah. you had an emotional rescue t-shirt, you were a cool cat. That was a, that way. was a, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. Those, so those were hard to come by. They
1: were hard to come. By. I mean, I wore mine until it had the moth holes in it. Was so <laughs> yeah. big that I had to wear another t-shirt underneath it. Right. <laughs> right,
0: right. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. And so, um, and Graham Woodruff, the guy who built and um, owned the boat for its entire the entire time, has unfortunately um, just been a little bit unwell and, and couldn't look after the boat anymore. And, and so I had the opportunity. So the sort of stars aligned as far as where I was at personally in my life with like the next sort of part of my journey um, and, uh, and the boat being available and, and my, you know, sort of my health back on track and I thought everything was in place but you know, this New chapter. New chapter, and then there was another new chapter and that was the night <laughs> that I bumped into this one. <laughs> and um yeah, I mean it's one of those interesting things. Obviously, like you say, I was married before eleven years and um I'd have had a you know, uh Five years separated. Had learned, been through a lot, a lot of life lessons, and and you know some some fairly big ups and downs through that period. And uh, fairly thought I was somewhat on track, and I guess I was on track. I wouldn't say I wasn't, but it was um it's just the w- incredible the way life works and i think when you're open and susceptible to to what it's got for you i think there's so many incredible and beautiful things that can happen and meeting jasmine's a perfect example of that you know we um we met through mutual friends one night and it was sort of very much a sort of love at first sight sort of scenario even though i was too afraid to, to look at you're keeping your head down <laughs>
0: If I remember correctly no eye contact you're trying not to make eye contact because you were contact. a little concerned about what might happen yeah
1: a little concerned and so what happened so yeah well, I um she finally managed to make eye. we finally she finally managed to convince me to make eye contact with her and um it was pretty clear there was quite a strong connection there from the very beginning and um after a few drinks uh and some Dutch courage. <laughs> There's the Dutch. The Dutch not in there somewhere. you have got to come. Um, I invited Jazz. I decided that she needed to see, come and see the emotional rescue. and. Um, what, this was in the evening? This was later in the evening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was later in the evening. And um, yeah, so we had a fairly sort of, it wasn't the most... We wouldn't call it the most romantic first uh, first you know encounter because there was a somewhat drama. I don't know how much detail we need to go into <laughs> on the first night. But put it this way, Jasmine and I sort of ended up being um, parting ways uh, in the early hours of the morning and sort of, um, what would you say, involuntarily, let's say.
0: Yeah. I mean, so you had had just, I mean, for a little background color, you had had a... Somebody that you had, you were dating at the time, and you're a little bit. Uh, I guess you were kind of separating to a degree.
1: Yeah, it was. I was just in. I was just in a bit of a transition. I was about to head overseas for a little while. I was a little unsure. It was a, a sort of unsure where things were at, and. Um,
0: and then def- you meet Jasmine. And, and, and,
1: and that was. And that was sort of. That was an incredibly unstoppable situation, but um, unfortunately.
0: So there's a little drama around you two being on the boat and this other person being. Um, Jumping in the middle of it.
1: <laughs> this is good. Thank you. It's a great story. We don't gaps. have to go into all the details. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: But the, um, and you're welcome to, by the way, but I don't want to embarrass you either. No, no, no. So, so, but this, I think, is what's interesting. So then, Jazz, you quickly ended up leaving. Mm-hmm. You ended up with with uh, with with Carl's phone by accident because yes, it was it? dark and people were grabbing items. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> and is that what kind of allowed you guys to re... Because you didn't even know each other's names, no, right? No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. so Am I getting don't
1: this right?
0: Yeah. You know, I, I'm guilty of... We, I think a lot of us have had, you know, mm. I- exciting evenings where you bump into strangers and it, it goes places you weren't expecting. Yeah. Um, but the reconnection, I think, is really, really interesting. So you ended up... You had his phone. So how did you guys get back together? How did you reconnect? Well,
1: um... <laughs> the next morning, sort of, yeah. The next morning, I um, when I woke up on the boat, and, um, there'd been a bit of drama, and um, my sister turned up to make sure, sure that I was all right and everything. And I did. I said to her at the time, I was like, you know what? when something like that normally happens. All you want to do is just forget and not just forget anything that ever happened and not talk to anyone yeah, again. Just bury that and just, move on. Yeah, right? bury yeah. that and move on. But I was just like I said to my sister. I said, but to be honest, I can't actually stop thinking about this person. I don't even know her name, you know. I couldn't even. You know, she's she's she disappeared off into the night, and and uh, and and that was it. And um, so, as it turned out, Jazz had conveniently accidentally grabbed a few of my bits and pieces of my belongings, and one of the things included was my phone. And so, when a close friend of mine was ringing me the next morning to see if I was okay. Um, she answered the phone <laughs> and managed to.
0: I was like, "Where do I? Who do I give this back to?" Right? Yeah, yeah pretty much. But you weren't in Auckland anymore.
1: No, was, I was. No, I was still in Auckland for another. Oh, you were. Okay, like, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So another couple of weeks, and so, um, essentially, yeah, what it all boils down to is, uh, is that um, one of the I, I'm heavily intuition based person. Um my it's worked well for you yeah I believe that's it's an essential part of being a good athlete and and, and in some ways like a good like you know good at whatever it is that you do and when you say intuition,
0: are you talking about sort of listening to your life?
1: Yeah, absolutely listening to your life, listening e- to your instincts.
0: explain and, that a little bit
1: like so it, you know it's it's like it's essentially it's it's the subconscious for me it's the subconscious. Component of of how we we uh, read and understand things that are going on and, and happening for us, you know, <laughs> it's 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 happening a lot faster than our conscious is is dealing with things. So when we're taking things in that we that we see or or hear um, versus what we feel, you know, and. I believe that there's so much more capacity. Intuition is so much more capacity. It's absorbing so much more. So, in a game or in a, in a competition, and you're sort of absorbing how your teammates are feeling and the pressure of the match. That's all intuition. That you know, it's emotional intelligence effectively. One hundred percent emotional intelligence. And and so, and and you know, without you know using the word too flippantly, you know, our happiness absolutely stems from this emotional intelligence. And I think when you living your life off kilter from from that emotional intelligence if you're you're letting your your conscious mind or your iq sort of steer you away from your from how your emotional intelligence and so when i met jasmine there's a very that was a very poignant thing for me as i was i was a bit off kilter from an emotional intelligence point of view until i met her and that she was like if there was something there that she rattled severely it was that and um it was it was too much for me to sort of ignore, you know, as far as... It, it, it woke you up in a way? Yeah, it did. And and so then, you know, there was a few... I had to travel overseas to Europe. So how,
0: from the night you guys first met, when did you have to take off again? I
1: think it was two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah. Two weeks later. Two weeks later, yeah.
0: And then, Jazz, if you want to sit next to him and, and chime in on any of this, you're <laughs> welcome to, by the way. I'm um, going to, to switch the setting on the mic just so it picks up. But the... Uh, so you guys, it was two weeks, and um, did you spend some time together over that two weeks?
1: Yeah, like five days. Five days for about the two weeks. And not yeah, five yeah, yeah five occasions. Five occasions, it wasn't, occasions you know, it wasn't yeah. yeah. And then I was away. I was always heading away for three weeks.
0: Okay, and where were you headed?
1: Um, to Europe. Okay, just up, up to Italy and then and then off to Spain. So basically, it's a very similar trip. It was a doing some sailing. A, yeah, the pre-regattas for the worlds that I'm off to now.
0: And so you're you're pretty full fully back. Not to totally switch gears, but you're bo- totally back into sailing now.
1: Yeah. not uh, no. What uh, uh, professionally? Yeah. Uh, th- it's a seasonal thing so i okay. decided i have I made a bit of a conscious decision not to go back to full time sailing there's a lot of things that i'd like actually you
0: don't want to be on the road all the time No,
1: i don't mind being on the road i don't mind the traveling but just from a, a professional aspect I, I, what i really want to start moving into more is, is is more of like sharing a lot more of what i've learned working with you know speaking and and sort of like getting more in, into all of that sort of stuff
0: yeah you did some use you, you have a concept one of those Concept you have is called Rough Diamond.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And you did some speaking for uh, Don McKenna and some of his guys in yeah, New yeah, Zealand. Yeah, right?
1: so doing some, like, just some, that, in the Rough Diamond things, a bit of a youth development thing. So, I, you know, the traveling's, in, I've traveled my entire life. It's an important yeah. part of my DNA. It, and especially, I think, coming from New Zealand, it's a big part of, of sort of how we perceive our life and see the world because we can be so isolated down there yeah and so that's where a little bit if i was tying all this back into what we're talking about is that's where it's quite like where the, the um coincidences continue is that um jasmine's brother flies um uh, for Cathay pacific oh, right, yeah, yeah 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 so even though i was off on my own journey overseas for this for this period of time she actually I
0: was already booked to be in Europe at the same time. Oh, so you... Just by chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so did you guys meet up when you were in Europe then? Yeah, three weeks later. Cool. Where did you Where did you meet up? In Palma. Oh, back yeah. in, in Mallorca. Yeah, yeah, back in Mallorca,
1: yeah. And uh, we got to spend some time together. Um, and it was just... I so guess, when, when did you
0: actually... What was the date when you met? 15th
1: of May.
0: 15th of May. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, no, I did interrupt no. you, but I... No, 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 it good. I was good. going to stop no, your thoughts.
1: was... Yeah, so 15th of May when we met, and um, and then it was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was, I don't know, it was, <laughs> it was a fairly, like, the three weeks apart was, um, was very telling, you know, it was a very significant... Um,
0: a lot of communication on the three weeks? Yeah, constantly. Constantly. Yeah. And then you got back together, and you ended up in Las Vegas? <laughs> yeah. How, how did you end up back, okay, so you're apart for... Or you know maybe touch base a couple of times over three weeks in Palma whatever, and you end up back in New Zealand together. Or did you go from Mallorca Majorca? We to... traveled together. Or you travel together. together? Okay. Yeah. So yeah. we changed. I got off staff travel and joined on his flights. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then you ended up. How did you end up in Vegas? Uh,
1: wow. Well, <laughs> it was. We just we were flying back through through the states on our way and it was and um, we're just. I guess we're just trying to figure out like.
0: This is literally like a month ago. Yeah. yeah. Literally okay. like a month
1: It just... Yeah. I get... So much... That's so hard to explain, but just so much happened in such a short period of time, you know? And um, we've both been... Both had our own personal situations of like what like what, what life had been like in the past. And, and, and this very much was like... Um, we were trying to sort of... I don't know. Consummate the word. I'm not sure. But just like really like... Lock it in. Lock it in. Exactly. And... Um, so we're like, well, guess if, we're, if you're going to run away and, and uh, elope anywhere... <laughs> where do you do it. Where else would you do it? In Vegas. <laughs> Put a big glittery
0: bow on that thing. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: So, and um, the chapel you got married in and the person who officiated <laughs> it is also kind of an interesting story. Where did you end up getting married?
1: Um, you can explain this. Uh, the Till Death Do Us Park
0: Chapel, which is a little black and white chapel inside the palms. Which is the craziest. Looks like a cartoon. Yeah, you look chapel. superimposed, but it is very real. By the way, is it okay if I share some of these photos yeah, online okay. as we okay, because yeah, yeah, I yeah, think yeah, these yeah. these are awesome. Yeah. And and who married you?
1: <laughs> well, um, we actually didn't have anyone to marry us the, from about uh, <laughs> At, about, at the time the wedding was meant to kick off, we didn't actually have anyone to marry us. So um, You
0: would assume the other that the guy who was organizing the wedding would have an officiant, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. He assumed that I had someone. I was like, no, I'm from New Zealand, and I'm just, you know. Just
0: for future reference, I am a dudist priest. I am, I am legal. <laughs> exactly. I can marry people. <laughs> yeah. well, no, trust me, we could have flown you out. <laughs> <laughs> we
1: only had 15 minutes. So. No,
0: no, it's too young. And so
1: yeah. what was kind of crazy was um, I, just, I left the... the the host guy to find a celebrant and while we had a couple of cocktails and calmed the nerves in the Palms Casino Um, they've got this incredible bar with a big I don't know if you've seen it they've got a giant shark you're a real shark, yeah. actually, a real shark above. Like, wait, are you, you talking about resin? the
0: one the ghost bar, the one that's way up high? That no, no, no this is okay. the one right
1: when you walk in the lobby. Okay, it's like yeah, this, yeah. Uh, they've chopped a great white shark into three pieces and set it in resin with all its. I haven't been there recently, maybe exactly. that's just, yeah, yeah,
0: I haven't seen uh, it. Make sure I see that next time. It's a tangent,
1: but yeah, the um, so I get called back, um, to the chapel without Jasmine to meet the celebrant, there and this guy's like, okay, all right. I'm here, we're all good to go, so just so I get a bit of bra- background, you know, tell me about, um, uh, who are you marrying, how long have you guys been together, <laughs> <laughs> so <Sorry>, he just asked last... me, <laughs> and I was like, wow, <laughs> okay, we, and he could see me, i would just goosebumps, and I was like, pretty nervous, and he, and he just pats me on the back, and he's like, uh, um don't worry, dude. He's like, these are my favorite sort of weddings. And, <laughs> said, and to be honest, at the time, I was too nervous, even direct, to, to really notice who he was. Until so a buddy of mine, who was part of the sort of the proceedings, was like, dude, did you ask him to sing Love Me Tender?
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> he looked a lot like an Elvis impersonator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because.
1: He is he the, is. Elvis. <laughs> he is. So the Elvis. So when, we, when people, when you tell people that you get married in Vegas, and everyone, then they think. Oh, then the first question they'll always ask is like, "Oh, did you get married by Elvis?" And,
0: and, and this is the first Elvis, one of the first Elvis impersonators, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Roland, The first. Roland
1: August, you can check it out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not in costume though. No, no. So you didn't have the flares on. Looked um, great though.
0: It looked and, like a fantastic.
1: No, it was. This, it was. Um, it was. That was an. You know. I mean, I've been through a lot of intense situations in my life. that's up there. It's right up there. <laughs> it's right up there. Yeah. It was, um, as, and again, just, just like just living life, you know, doing it.
0: So you're, you guys are off to Palma, Mallorca tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got the worlds you're going to be, you know, running the crew on. What happens after that? Where are you guys going together? Where does this team go?
1: Mm. Home, mate. Home, yeah, we go home. So, you know, since we met, there's been a lot going on. And uh, so the next, you know, this team heads home after the Worlds. It's spring in New Zealand. And and really what we've got to do is sort of get rubber to the road as far as the life that we've committed to together. Mm -hmm. So
0: you've got five kids, I mean, five shared kids now. Well, six all together. Six (laughs) six shared, okay. And you've got three that are kind of in the same age group, is that right? Yeah. Yeah,
1: three in the same age group, Yeah and that we'll be working through so it's like you know setting up we've kind of done things in reverse like we had the honeymoon before we had the wedding and (laughs) you know we've had the kids before we before we met you kept those bits
0: out of the way yeah Yeah. so
1: now it's like putting it all together and um, and uh, obviously got the America's Cup coming to New Zealand and we're setting up the sailing school and um, just really enjoying at the moment Jazz and I just really enjoying kind of Amalgamating and combining our lives, and, and excited about the future. You
0: know, are you going to be a part of the Americas Cup in New Zealand?
1: Uh, not competitively, no. I'm going to, um, you know, look at doing some commentating, commentating and, and and maybe if, and then you know have some take some skippering some charter boats out on the on the course and that kind of thing. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well,
0: maybe we'll Before come we do. down there and uh, yeah. see if we can we can uh, charter the, your your new boat and see what's going on down Absolutely. there. Absolutely, it'll be awesome. It'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, um, congratulations, Thanks. Jasmine and Carl. We're very, you, uh, cheers, we're very, very excited about your future together. Um, if the past is any indicator of future success, uh, I think you're going to be very, very happy, very lucky, and yeah. you're going to work very hard together.
1: Yeah,
0: Thank you for coming to the Kick Aspirational podcast. Hey? That was a privilege, right? Yeah, good fun. Good awesome. fun. <laughs> This has been the Kick Aspirational Podcast. This is not a spectator sport. Love to get your questions, your input, your feedback. And above all else, whatever you do this week, please be Kick Aspirational.